today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. civilized quote-unquote culture, sometimes that line gets a little shifty, doesn't it? And I think many times, yeah, it's hard to become and to stay and remain faithful to the Lord in a wicked culture, but at least then you know who you're standing for. I think that there's a lot of people today in our culture that consider themselves believers and consider themselves as followers of the Lord. But in reality, there's such compromise in their lives that the world can't really tell them apart from the world. You get my point? We are living in a day and age when good is called evil and evil is called good. We need to be diligent about remaining righteous. Pastor David is reminding us to be lights in the darkness. It's easy to see a bright light in the dark, but if we don't let our little lights shine, no one will be able to tell whether we are different from the darkness. We should take time to recharge our batteries and make sure that our light doesn't dim. We want to be known as Christians and for people to see we're different. Now let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 14 for today's edition of The Open Word. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. They are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without guilt before the throne of God. It's interesting when we get to chapter 14 and as we move on into it, we're going to see some events happening here. As I've shared with you before, as we've been going through Revelation, it's not necessarily chronological. Sometimes there are overview events. Sometimes there is, again, as we've looked at some of it being symbolic that we can look at. Yeah, that's definitely symbolic. Some of it's very literal, definitely literal. The best way that we can understand, the best way that we can receive it is to take the simplest understanding first. And if that works, then go with that instead of trying to make it and twist it to be some really strange and weird stuff. And as I've shared with you guys before, there are sometimes as we're studying through here, oh, I know what a lot of different people have said about different things, but a lot of that is just speculation and, you know, kind of putting their thoughts and everything. I really try not to do that, particularly as we're teaching the word. And I mean, sometimes it makes it 
interesting to say, well, I think that this is, you know, King so-and-so that's over there and, you know, right now and uh, this guy and this guy. Well, we don't know. And even as I was sharing before and we shared with you guys, I think the last couple of weeks is that depending upon your background, depending upon your culture, depending upon what country you live in, depending upon what decade you're in, your interpretation of Revelation can be quite a bit different. And so let's take the word for what the word declares and then let God sort it out for us as, again, we move on into time. In verse 1, John says, And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having their father's name written on their foreheads. The lamb standing on Mount Zion would be none other than the resurrected Christ, the same one that John saw back in chapter 5, verse 6, the lamb as though he were slain, standing there. So I have no problem with that. Here he stands with the 144,000. Well, we know who the 144,000. They come from chapter 7, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. We know who those are. These were sealed back in chapter 7. In other words, the anticipation was, is don't start pouring out this wrath on the earth. Remember, the angels were held back until these 144,000 were sealed. So we know who these were, and they were sealed with the Father's name. Everyone else at that point, there was this great persecution that came on to the earth. Persecution for many that were, they were persecuted to death. And yet here at chapter 14, we've got 144,000, not 143,000, not 143,999,000. We've got 144,000. God has preserved, God has kept these 144,000 from chapter 7. And as we've looked through all these other things and all these other issues that have gone on in the chapters that went from chapter 7 to where we're at now, we know that a lot of people have died. Some because of the wrath of God being poured out. Many because of persecution from the Antichrist, the beast, the dragon, all these things that we've looked at, the great persecution that's gone. But here God has preserved these special ones during this time. And they're standing with Jesus here on Mount Zion. Now, we could look at this and we think, well, there is a literal Mount Zion. That's the area in Jerusalem where the temple is located and would have been located in John's time. John was very familiar not only with that term Mount Zion, but also that the temple was located. These would have been standing here during that time of great tribulation, and Christ would have been standing there with them. Hopefully that would speak of the comfort of Christ to them during this time of persecution. However, However, some look at this, and I tend to agree with this latter understanding, is that they're looking at the heavenly Mount Zion that really in this case, keep your place there in Revelation, you can actually turn over to the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews it speaks of this heavenly Zion. In chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, the writer of Hebrews says that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. 
Isn't that cool? We're registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. If it is the case, and the 144,000 are standing in the new Zion with Christ there with them, then they've already been martyred, all 144,000. So either they're still on earth, none have lost their life, or they're in heaven now, and all have lost their life. The reason I tend toward that is because of some of the other things that, that fall into play along in this chapter. They're there with Christ, I believe, to receive the rewards for their faithfulness. This would picture the faithfulness of Christ as he's there to receive them into his presence and to welcome them after they've been faithful witnesses for the Lord during their time there on earth. It also flows pretty easily with, as I said, the balance of this passage. As John sees these 144,000 with the Lamb there in the heavenly Mount Zion, he also hears a voice. Verse 2 says, and I heard a voice from heaven. Okay, so either they're on earth and they're hearing the voice coming down, or they're in heaven and he hears this great voice. So he hears this voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. A voice. No, not the current reality TV talent show, but a voice from heaven. A voice from heaven, a mighty, it's, and it's a powerful voice. It's like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. These descriptions usually are ones that designate the voice of God. We see very similar descriptions of the voice of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. And yet in the context of this passage, and although the word here, I heard the voice, or I heard a voice, it was like the voice, and like the voice, so it speaks about it singular. I believe that the voice was a combined voice coming out as one. It's kind of the same as John hears the sound, a singular sound, of multiple harpists playing. I think that what's going on there is something very special that's either about to happen or is happening. We look at verse 3. The voice here in verse 3, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So this great voice comes, and then the 144,000 began this song that no one else can learn except the 144,000. A new song is sung. There's a little side note here. For those of you who only want to sing the old songs, the old standards, the old familiar ones, you're going to have a really hard time in heaven, okay? Because they're singing new songs all the time in heaven. So, again, the question is, who is actually singing? Whoever it is, they're singing before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. They were in heaven, this great voice, okay? And so, again, if you feel that the 144,000 were still on the earth, well, it couldn't have been them that were singing. But since no one else could learn the song except the 144,000, I believe it would have to be them. 
the 144,000 who, what does it say there, were redeemed from the earth. All of that past tense. So I see the 144,000 at this point in time. They are in heaven. They are learning a new song. And they're singing this song very loudly, very powerfully. Verse 4 goes on to speak about this. It says a description of these 144,000. He says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women. They were virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So again, 144,000 that I believe were now martyred. And John says they had not defiled themselves with women. So ladies, don't take this personal, okay? It's not a personal slam against women. What it is, it's, it's speaking of the fact that they just had not been married. They remained virgins. What he was simply saying is this 144,000 remained celibate, never marrying, never having relationships with a woman because they were wholly, completely dedicated to Christ and nothing else was even on their scope of uh, commitments or care They just cared about the things of the Lord, and they moved forward. It's interesting that Paul speaks to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians that he kind of wishes that everybody was like he was, or at least at that time that he was unmarried. And he tells the church there in Corinth in chapter 7, if you're not married, stay unmarried so you can serve the Lord faithfully. But if you are married, well, stay married and serve the Lord. But you need to understand this, that... If you are married, you are concerned, and you need to be concerned. You need to rightly be concerned with, again, your spouse and the care for them. He says, but not everybody's able to do that. So if you do get married, that's okay, too. So, again, he gives great freedom in the midst of that. But it brings about this idea of, as a single individual, that it's okay in God's eyes to be single. And it's okay because, again, then you can serve the Lord actually with a, with a more complete way and a more intenseness in your life. Because let's face it, I'm glad that I'm married. I would not want it to be any other way. I'm glad my wife and I, again, we hopefully care for each other and take care of the needs of each other. I know that she takes care of my needs a whole lot better than I take care of her needs. But I don't, that's just the way it is. And I'm blessed because of that. I love you, sweetheart. I know you're there. Um, But anyway, these had never been married. So he's not saying, hey, they weren't defiled with women. They didn't touch, they didn't get cooties. That's not what he's saying. He said that they just remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Says that again, completely, faithfully obedient to the lamb. They were redeemed from among men, he says there. So in the midst of all the wickedness, Of those last days, I believe that perversion just multiplies. It's not added to in the last days. I believe that it just snowballs at that time. So in the midst of all of that, these 144,000, they've been marked, they've been sealed by God, they've been redeemed from amid all the fallenness of mankind that surrounded them. Question I've got for you tonight to ponder. Is it easier to become a Christian, and serve the Lord with a whole heart in a wicked culture or in a civilized culture? Ponder that 
for a moment. Is it easier to be full out for the Lord in a wicked culture or a civilized culture? The reason that I asked that is because as I was studying this, I kept pondering this. You know, if you're in a wicked culture, there's just flat out a line in the sand. And that you live on this side of it if you are a believer, and you don't go on the other side. But in a civilized, quote-unquote, culture, sometimes that line gets a little shifty, doesn't it? And I think many times, yeah, it's hard to become and to stay and remain faithful to the Lord in a wicked culture, but at least then you know who you're standing for. I think that there's a lot of people today in our culture that consider themselves believers, and consider themselves as followers of the Lord. But in reality, there's such compromise in their lives that the world can't really tell them apart from the world. You get my point? So in the wicked culture, righteousness stands out a lot more. Definitely you become a bigger target. But in the civilized culture, afraid too many times our lives blend in together way too much. Verse 5, he says, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Without fault before the throne of God. You need to understand, these, these guys weren't perfect. The 144,000, they were still human. I do not believe that they were perfect, but it does say that they were without fault. It says deceit was not found. They do not practice deceit. But the real, real reason that they're able to stand before the throne isn't because they were without fault and they didn't practice deceit. The real reason that they were able to stand before the throne without guilt and without condemnation was because they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Just like anyone today, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is what allows us to stand before the throne. There are many religions in the world even today that continue to push today, some that even have the name of Christian within their description of who they are, and you will never be able to stand before the throne according to their doctrines unless you're able to earn your way to that. And beloved, I know that I can't earn it. I know that I would fail absolutely miserably. Christ earned that for me. It's through the blood of the Lamb. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And that idea back in verse 4 when it says first fruits, that means like the cream of the crop, the first fruit offering. That was the best. That was the beginning offering. And that was the one that you would give. You know, now people, by and large, when it comes to giving to the Lord, let's face it, most people give from the leftovers, Right. I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to take care of this. And if any of us left over, then I'll give to the Lord, rather than being first fruit givers. And these, it says, being first fruits to God, means that it was the best, it was the top. It was the best of the offerings for it. Let's look at verses 6 through 13. After the 144,000, now, here we see this word then. If you'll look with me, Back to chapter 13. The first word in chapter 13, anybody have that? Then. The first word in chapter 13, verse 11, 
then. Now in chapter 14, verse 1, it is then. Verse 6, it is then. Verse 9 is then. Verse 13 is then. Verse 14 is then. Verse 17 is then. Now, my question to you, does that always mean that it's chronological? This happened, then this happened, then this happened. You would think, yeah, it does, because again, just chronologically, I went to the store, then I went to the post office, then I went to the bank, and then I came home. However, if we were looking at an overview, and I'm showing you a grand overview, and I'm going to show you this, and then I'm going to show you this, and then I'm going to show you this, it does not necessarily mean that the time factor of these events are chronological. They're simply chronological in how and when John viewed them. Does that make sense to you? Am I explaining that well enough? Has anybody got deer in the headlight look on their face? You're wondering what I meant by what I just said? John is seeing them at different times because it's not just all revealed to him. He's seeing it separate times. But yet that does not mean that these particular events are all happening at a chronological time, simply said. So verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Verse 8, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. I said all of what I said before I read this to say this. I look at verse 6 through 13 as more of an overview of some events that are either happening or will be happening. When we look down and start looking at verses 14 through 20, I believe that these are some events that will be happening, but it's an overview on those, and we'll look at those in a moment. We look at these three separate, these three distinct angels of verses 6 through 13. And I don't believe that these are angelic messengers that we've seen in the past, that this is the same angels that did this or that. No, number one, I don't think there needs to be. Number two, I just look at these and I see they have a pretty distinct purpose and a pretty distinct you know, portion in all that's going on here. John doesn't describe them very much at all. He just says that they are angels because it's not the angel that's important. It's the message 
that's important. The message is the issue here that we need to pay attention to. It's the message that we need to understand. We've come to the end of our time together for today. But if you're not ready to be done yet, you can find additional messages from The Open Word. Pastor David is here to share how you can continue listening. Hey, thanks, Chris. We love getting the Word of God out to as many people as possible. All the teachings you hear on The Open Word have been preserved on our website. You're welcome to access them. Visit theopenword.com to listen to or download the messages God has supplied from His Word. That website again is theopenword.com or you can search for The Open Word Podcast on iTunes and subscribe for free. I'd like to encourage you to take these messages with you on the go. You never know when you'll have a moment of peace in your day. So why not fill it with God's Word? I hope you continue to study the Bible and that it continues to bless you and fill you with His joy. Thanks, Pastor David. We're so glad these resources are available to us whenever we want them. The book of Revelation is so often shrouded in mystery with its outlandish pictures of winged creatures by the throne of God and roaming the earth. As we continue to study, though, we'll be able to discern how these pictures all point to the one spotless lamb who conquered all through laying down his life. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, the lamb, give us a call at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. We'd love to share the greatest story with you, the one where God came down to earth to join in a relationship with us. That's all for today, but join us next time right here on The Open Word.